And we have youthful exuberance in the room with uh, experienced wisdom. And so it's just beautiful. And, and I know I could probably sit here and talk all day about you guys, but I, I want you to like me. And I know we've probably got plans for the rest of the day, Super Bowl plans. So I'm just going to move right along. Um, and I feel like Kevin and Ken have totally set me up this week. Uh, yeah, I, last time I was up here and preached, um, I got to preach on how Jesus' birth is something that we can't disconnect from the rest of our year. It's something that's constantly be on our minds and our hearts. Well, what do you know? A month later, here we are, Isaiah chapter 7 and Isaiah chapter 9. So we get to talk exactly about that. And so let's dive right in. I just pray that we would be faithful to the word this morning to, to read it for the intended purpose that God had for it. Uh, because all scripture is God-breathed. So... Doing, having said that, let's just jump right in. Last week, Kevin did an incredible job walking us through Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, it was a huge encouragement to me. And so uh, now we're picking up in Isaiah 7. And so I want us to have a little bit of background. I know our passage is actually Isaiah 7, 10 through um, 25, and then also 9, 1 through 7. But I want to make sure that we kind of have an overview and an understanding of what is going on <coughs> Right here in Isaiah chapter 7. And so uh, at the beginning of chapter 6 it says in the year King Uzziah died. And so now we jump to chapter 7 and we have the reign of King Ahaz. So there's actually a pretty sizable gap in between Isaiah chapter 6 and Isaiah chapter 7. And so not only is Ahaz on the uh, the throne now, but before him Uzziah's son and Ahaz's father, King Jotham, actually had a reign in there. And so there's a pretty sizable gap. They were jumping through right here. And so I want us to have that understanding that it's Isaiah's mission. Man, it's, it's, it's going on. It's an ongoing thing. It's not something where, man, he just jumped right in and this, you know, he's going through this. And I just got to say, um, having looked at this passage this week, I have a lot of respect and admiration for Isaiah. He said, here am I, send me, not knowing what the mission he was being called to was. And we're about to dive into this and see what mission he was actually called to and why a lot of us, if we knew the mission, would have held out, held out. We would have said, hey, God, is there another option for me? And so we pick up in Isaiah chapter 7. And so Isaiah's on the throne. And Isaiah, things aren't going the way Isaiah probably, or Ahaz would have intended for them to go. And it says in verse chapter two, or 7, verse 2, it says, When the house of the Lord David was told, Syria is in the league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees... Um, as the trees in the forest shake before the wind. And so here we have Ahaz. And he is, he is afraid. He's frightened. The people are frightened. And I love that this is kind of a subtle jab here. Um, that the king of David, which was mighty and which was powerful, is now shaking as the wind or as trees in the wind. This is a good reminder for us of that. And so Isaiah is going to get a word from the Lord. And he's going to be sent out here in uh, chapter 7. And so the Lord in verse Three says, and the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz. And, um, and so this is huge right here. Uh, Ahaz, uh, Isaiah is not just going out to meet Ahaz. He's going out with his son. And his son's going to deliver an intentional message without even saying a word. And so this message is going to be clear to Ahaz. So his son, I'm not even going to, I tried to look at the pronunciations or pronunciations of his name. And it's, it's one, I'm just going to say, hey, his name literally means a remnant shall return. And so before Ahaz even says a word, or before Isaiah says a word to Ahaz, he's already conveying a message that a remnant will return. And so here it is. He's saying that, yes, war may be imminent. 
destruction may be, uh, destruction is going to come. But out of that, out of that, a remnant will return. So while on the surface this message sounds pretty bleak, it's actually a message of hope that is going to try to be communicated. And so here it is. Isaiah goes out to meet Ahaz. And Ahaz is at the conduit of his upper pool. Now this isn't Ahaz just chilling out with a drink that has an uh, umbrella with it and sitting by his poolside just enjoying a loungy day. No, this is actually his water supply, his main water supply. And so if you understand the context of this, Jerusalem doesn't have a natural source. And so this water here is actually what is going to sustain the people if they are attacked. He has to make sure that this is guarded and protected. And so he's up there. This is like mission critical in his eyes. And so you can see the trembling and the fear that he has, that he's going and he's readying himself for this. And that's when Isaiah meets him. And I love what Isaiah uh, says here in verse four. He says to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear and do not let your heart be faint because of the two smoldering stumps of firebrands and the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramallah. Because Syria with Ephraim, the son of Ramallah, has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as the king in the midst of it. And so you got to understand here what is going on. And so we talked about it some um, when we talked about Isaiah 9, but the Assyrian army is massive. They are a force to be reckoned with. When their name gets mentioned, everybody shudders in fear. And so everybody's in fear of this army coming to invade. And so Syria and Israel decide they're going to form an anti-Assyrian pact. And this isn't a pact that they're going to, hey, we're going to go attack the Assyrian army. No, this is more of a defensive posture that we need to just hold off the Assyrian army. They are a force to be reckoned with. When everybody mentions their names, it's shuddering in fear. And so they want Judah, they want Ahaz to be a part of this coalition that they're forming. But at the time, they want to replace Ahaz as king and put a puppet king on there. And that's when Isaiah goes to um, Ahaz to talk to him about this. And so uh, this is just beautiful that the message is clear um, for God to say to him, these two countries that are coming at you, Syria, Israel, their attack It's nothing but smoldering smoke. That's it. Their fire will never come back. They will not be able to overtake you. That is what he's saying here. He's saying this fire, this is nothing. And in fact, he goes on to say in verse 7, It shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is resin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. Not only will this attack not sustained or not happen. But the countries that are coming at you, they, they won't even be countries in 65 years. Like, take hope in what I'm trying to say to you, that you don't have to have this fear. You don't have to have this. And so he sees the enemy is close. Ahaz sees the enemy is close and that the people are scared. But the Lord says, trust me, trust me. The nations are fleeting, but I am forever. Isaiah ends with a pretty poignant statement here in verse 9. He says to him, if you are not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. So simply put, if you do not believe, you're not going to last. And so this is where I want to pause for a moment and I actually want to jump to the New Testament because I feel like this is a huge word for us to hear this morning. And so in 1 John 5, 4, it says this, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory 
that has overcome the world, our faith. So when we have genuine faith, when we have a genuine faith, and I'm not talking, I come to the altar, oh yes, I'm good, I'm going to walk out the door and deny and buy my lifestyle faith, but an actual genuine faith that is abiding and ongoing reliance in Christ, we can overcome the world. John repeats these words again in verse 5. He says, what is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So when we have abiding and trusting faith in Jesus, we can overcome the temptations and the pressures of this world, just as Ahaz is experiencing here. And I love what J.I. Packer writes. He says this, It, knowing God, is the most practical project anyone can engage in. Knowing about God is crucially important for living our lives. Packer continues, Disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through this life blindfolded, as it were, without no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. That's that's a great word. And so we face these same battles that Ahaz is facing right here. We can stand to look at our circumstances. We We can look at the world or we can look to God. And so Ahaz here is just attempting to survive. He's not attempting to look uh, to God. He's just attempting to survive. And so he's looking at the, the temporary and sacrificing the eternal. Um, and so that's a big thing for us to hear today. And so he tried to make this battle his own instead of trusting and letting the Lord fight his battle for him. And so Ahaz and we need to shift our focus from surviving or thinking about ourselves and our circumstances to glorifying God and focusing on the eternal. Uh, and if you think about this, there's a couple of instances that come to mind. Think about Jesus. At the beginning of his ministry, he gets uh, taken out into the wilderness to be tempted. And he goes 40 days and 40 nights without any nourishment. So at this point, his survival is totally at stake. But what does he say? Man cannot live by bread alone. Oh, that's good news for us in this room that he understood it. He knew the outcome was secure so he could resist the temptations the devil was bringing what do you think about it also? What about Daniel in the lion's den? Or David and Goliath with a small uh, sack of stones was able to stand up to Goliath. They knew the outcome and trusting in the Lord Almighty was the way to go. The beautiful reality of trusting in God. And this is, this is huge for us. The, 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 uh, the beautiful thing of trusting in God, trusting in Christ, is the outcome is secure for us in this room. Christians, you're not fighting for victory or for, for survival. You're actually fighting from victory. You don't have to sit there and look at the circumstances of your life as a battle or as something that you have to fear. You can know that you have secure victory in Christ. That is, that is absolutely bedrock to our faith that we can stand on. That is a foundation for us. Oh man, we haven't even started to look at our actual passage today. So we might uh, want to do that here. So Back to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 10, um, he says this in verse 10. He says, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Whoa. All right. This gets really real for me in this situation because Isaiah is kind of out of the picture. Not really like out of the picture, but metaphorically speaking, this is meant to be a conversation between between Ahaz and God. This is going to get real for them. And so the prophet Isaiah is now in the background and it's God and Isaiah. And what goodness is displayed right here. There's absolute beautiful, beautiful things here. The all-merciful one is going to approach the rebellious one. How many times is that us? How many times are we the rebellious one and God approaches us with his love? So this message is from God. And he made clear that there was no reason to fear Israel. 
or Syria. But Ahaz was not moved by that initial um, revelation that God spoke through Isaiah. And so God's going to speak here again. And he spoke again to touch Ahaz's cold heart. He wanted and gave another chance for Ahaz to believe. And so in verse 11, he says this. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. God offers this invitation of a sign. And in fact, if we know scripture, it's actually a sin to put God to the test. You know, if we don't recall his faithfulness and ask for him to be trustworthy again, uh, that's, that's a sin. But here it's flipped on its head. It's the Lord that's offering the sign here. And it's important that his promises are met with trust. So here the Lord is ready to give Ahaz anything. Any request to show that God is worthy and that Ahaz should believe. Dude, Ahaz, this is pretty cool right here. Like, uh, not only is God basically giving you a second chance to trust him, but he's also saying, whatever you need for me to show you I'm trustworthy, ask and I'll give it. My head struggles to wrap around that. Like, I think a Roos Chris steak dinner would be really nice right now. Like, yeah. Or, hey, I would love, and I, I've talked to a couple of people this morning, I would love for somebody other than the Patriots to win the Super Bowl right now. That would be absolutely great. Um, yeah, or, God, uh, man, we just planned a beach trip, and I would love for a six-pack of abs to display on the beach. Like, those are on the small side of things. I mean, think about it. You could ask for a billion dollars or an amusement park in your backyard. Or, God, I want to name the stars. Or even in Ahaz's case here, God, raise my kingdom and vanquish all my foes. Like, he has the, he has, he has the opportunity here. And so here, I think, man, the light bulb is about to click for Ahaz. Like, he's, he's getting it. Like, God, second time. Like, here it is. And you, you said I could give anything, ask for anything. Like, man, the light bulb's coming on. I see, like, this dramatic music playing in the background. And no, total letdown. Verse 12, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to test. Ahaz actually has some pretty quick skill here at... Uh, diplomacy and quick thinking. Because at first glance, you think, man, Ahaz is actually not having a, a crisis of small faith, but he actually has a lot of faith. Uh, he's, hey, man, God, I, I trust you. I don't, I don't need you to, to do this. But here, he's taking strip, scripture totally out of context. Like so many have before him, and sadly, like so many in our world do today. So then let that be a caution to everyone in here. Know the word. Know the word, and, and it's been entrusted to faithful men, not men who are going to twist it and deceive it for their own purposes like Ahaz is here. So be on guard. Oh, man. So, yeah, we just need to realize that this is, this is Ahaz twisting Scripture to benefit himself. And so instead of God proving himself, here Ahaz is proving he is a unbeliever. A wicked unbeliever because he's twisting and deceiving. And so instead of Ahaz trusting in the Lord, he actually will put his faith in man. So further, we know that his plan is to form an alliance with Assyria. And so thus, in this very hour, when God was saying, trust me, I will take care of this. These enemies that are on your doorstep, they're not going to overtake you. If you put your trust in me here, he actually seals the fate. Ahaz seals the fate. Of Jerusalem for 2,000 years. Oh, like what a decision that you have today to trust in the Lord and know that He will provide for you. But think about all the things you are giving up 
if you don't trust him. Think about his provisions. And so here in verse 13, I think this is where it really is telling for me. Here then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you may weary my God also? And so from the start, David's house is not fulfilling its divine purposes. It's not, it's not had a perfect king. Um, it's failed both men and God. And the history of its inadequacy is coming to a head right here. Ahaz and his royal refusal to trust God is the end of the line. And so Isaiah can speak here in verse 13 by saying, he says, Hear then, O house of God, is it too little for you to weary men that you may weary my God? It's no longer Ahaz's God anymore. He's removed the, Ahaz, the your God that he said in verse 10. And so it's at this point that you're kind of left to wonder, well, what's God going to do now? Like surely he would have thought when he offered this to Ahaz, there would have been a different outcome. Um, but not the case. You see, God, since the beginning of time, has been making a way. Think back to Genesis 3. Uh, Adam and Eve thought, man, we can do this thing a whole lot better than God can. And so entered into the world sin right there. And so God then delivers consequences uh, for sin to the man and to woman and to the serpent. But what's most telling is the, the consequence of sin to the serpent. You will bruise his head or you will bruise his heel and he will crush your head. Huh. So right here in the thick of things from the beginning, God through the fog of war and through the sins of man says, I am going to fix this. One will come that will crush sin and death and restore the people to God. That is, that is awesome. And that's what leads us to these next verses. So have that in mind that God, since the beginning of time, is making a way for, belief, for people to be made right with him, even though we are sinners. And so here, here we come. Verse 14 and 15 of Isaiah 7. Therefore, the Lord said, uh, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Uh, isn't that good news that here we are? Rejecting, rejecting, and God's still going to give a sign to people, to his people, that I am making a way for this. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. This isn't just a sign, but this is a pretty miraculous sign. Uh, parents in this room, um, I'm pretty sure that there is a biological reason that your children are sitting in this room today. Uh, moms, I don't think that you stumbled into the hospital after nine months of uh, intense pain and, 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 and a large stomach and said, I don't know what my condition is, and then out popped the baby. No, that's, you knew what the condition was. You knew what was going on. There was a biological reason that your child was born. But here, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. This is a miraculous sign. God is going to, and not only that, Emmanuel, this is such hope right here in the midst of this. God with us, that even in the midst of it, God is sitting there with him. The second thing to note in this text uh, right here in these verses is that the Savior to come will be familiar with poverty. So it says here that he will eat honey and curds. Well, that's actually the diet of a peasant. And so he's not going to be this king that's born in a palace or have a silver spoon in his mouth. No, he, this Savior to come, will crush the head of the devil, will bless all the families of the earth, will be born of a Virgin Mary, and he will be a man acquainted with poverty. Oh, this isn't good news for us. The, pro- the prophecy that the one who is coming, born of a woman, to crush the head of Satan, to bless all the families of the earth, would be a king, a prophet, and a priest. 
Accommodation that never occurs in the Bible. In fact, when kings try to actually be the priest, it never goes well for them at all. But yet this Savior will come because he will be all three offices of prophet, priest, and king. And so the remaining verses of chapter 7 is just the Lord telling of what's coming to Isaiah. And, and so I want to I make sure we get to Isaiah 9. Um, and so it's just going to give a slight overview of what's going on. The land that once Ahaz feared will be long gone. The, and so those countries, as God promised, 65 years later would not be. And when Ahaz should have trusted in the king, the Lord of hosts, he trusted in an earthly king of Assyria. And now Assyria is occupying his land, has overtaken him. As it says here, uh, that the Lord will whistle for the fly and for the bee, and they will swarm the land and settle there. This imagery is huge. I know I don't like bees and I don't like flies, but those things are about to swarm on this nation and inhabit it and take over it. And so it's going to consume it. And so here is just a bleak picture of what the consequences of Ahaz's decisions are. And so it's with that that we jump in to uh, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, or 1 through 7. So if you want to be in chapter 9, we're going to start reading in verse 1. That there will be no gloom for who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And so I just want us to get a, a little picture before we continue on. Galilee uh, is where Jesus predominantly does his three-year ministry. It's predominantly all in Galilee. And so I want us to be thinking about that as we continue through this passage. The people who walked in the darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light is shown. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. Are they glad, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot, boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fire, fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and the peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over the kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness, from this time forward and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of the hosts will do this. Oh, this is really good. So now a couple of things to consider here. One is a really big takeaway from this text, and it's, it's concerning the prophecies concerning the Savior. Um, and so this was a huge turn we see in Isaiah 9. And this is what happened. Wonderful counselor, almighty God. So for the first time in prophetic literature, we see the promise of a Savior to come. And we find out it's not just a mere man. It's not some man that will come who will become the king, who will drive out Rome, and who will become an earthly king. This is God himself coming to fix what's wrong. Crush the head of the enemy and bless all the families of the earth. This is a big change for the people. So at this one point, hey, there's just going to be somebody that's going to come to save us. But here it's God coming in flesh to come and save us. So how's God going to solve this? How's he going to do this? Uh, It's Emmanuel, God with us. And so Jesus Christ will come into the world void of sin, live a perfect life, die a death. And not just a death, but a death that has the weight of the wrath of sin. On his shoulders. Uh, And not only that. But he is going 
to rise from the grave three days later, defeating sin and death once and for all. He's going to abolish death right there. Oh, and this is just really uh, a powerful movement here that these people would have understand that not only, uh, gosh, is God, is God going to give us a king, but this king is going to die for us. And so it's at this point I also want to point out the historical reference to Galilee. Because Galilee is really interesting here. Um, Galilee is in the northern part of Israel. And, uh, and when Israel is invaded, it normally has to go right through Galilee because it's, it's in the northern part. And so it's hemmed in by the sea and by uh, the mountains. And so a lot of times when people are going to attack Jerusalem, they are going through Galilee. And on the way, they're pillaging their way through it. They're taking what they want. They are, uh, man, it's just, in a, it's, it's all over the scripture that they're just getting taken left and right. And so nothing is, uh, and so they, yeah, if you talk about it, all this darkness and all this talk about battle tumult and marching in blood garments, going in the fire, a reference to the extreme violent history of Galilee. Galilee has been the point where all these invading forces would take what they want, burn to the ground as they laid siege to, Israel, or to Jerusalem. And then sometimes they would even lay siege for years. And then they would go and on their way back, they would pillage again. They would do the same thing. And, and so nothing is more brutal than an invading soldier. Um, but then there's nothing more brutal than that, that on his way back from defeat, he gets to do it again. So he's angry. These soldiers are angry. So this is Galilee's history. What we find here is this dark place. But it becomes ground zero for the light of the world. This dark, cursed spot in Israel's history becomes uh, the ground zero for destruction of oppression, violence, slavery, and injustice. And so a people walking in darkness have seen a great light. This is Galilee right here. And so these aren't, these aren't people that have just had a rough season. There's so many times in life where we just say, man, I'm in a rough season. Oh, no, not this place. This place has been marked by centuries of death, centuries of violence, centuries of a lack of safety or a lack of stability. Nobody is vacationing in Galilee. Like when we were planning our beach vacation, we weren't, hey, man, let's go to the worst place possible. That's where we want to be. No, we're wanting beach. We're wanting sunsets. That's not happening here in Galilee. In fact, you're not even taking your family there. You don't want your family anywhere near it. If you're in Galilee, it's probably because you're too poor to be anywhere else. This is your last resort. Yet this is where ground zero is for the divine invasion. This is spectacular when we look at it. And so, yeah, what do we do with this passage? What do we do with these passages? I think the first thing is immediately to see God's redeeming love. That God stepped in and intervened into our darkness and brought us light. Let this be a reminder that your faith is rooted in a perfect love. That God is trustworthy. And for those of you in this room that that aren't believers, that, that don't know this redeeming love of God, see it. See it. That in our sin, we have a redeeming history since the beginning of time and sin in the world that God said, I will make a way for you to be right with me. That I will love you unconditionally. Oh, this is, this is huge for us. He never wavered and ultimately sent his son, Emmanuel, God with us, to die for the sins of the world so that you could be made whole again. There is no greater love than this. And then I think there's a few exhortations that we see in verse 4 of chapter 7. If we look back, uh, he says, be careful or be mindful. When circumstances are swirling around us, 
We need to remember what Moses said in Deuteronomy 6.12. He says this, Take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. It's essential that we recall what the Lord has done through us throughout history. And even in our own lives. Think about all the times the Lord has been faithful to you in your own life and in your everyday circumstances. I think the chief one among it is your salvation. Remember that God has been faithful to you. Be mindful of that. The next one is to be quiet. And and I'm not saying this isn't noise to be around. Uh, But rather in our lives, we often don't stop ourselves. We often, uh, when something comes at us, we are quick to react. We're quick to, to get our mind going, to think and to go to action. Or we think about others and we go to others for help. Isaiah 30, 15, God says, In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. And so at our moments of crisis, we need to find the calm and certain confidence in the Lord. Our strength in the Lord uh, is, is needed instead of listening to the noise. Be quiet and hear from the Lord. Next, he says, do not fear. This phrase recalls the providences, the promises, and the purposes of God. God used these words when he appeared to Moses, to Abraham, to Joshua, and Elijah. Uh, it may seem trite to tell Ahaz, Not to fear, but the rationale is implicit. God was with him. God was for him. And he made promises to him. Ahaz then needed to respond on the basis of that conviction. And at the same time, similarly, I and we need to recalibrate our perspective around God when uncertain circumstances are around us. I love this quote from Corey Tim Boom. I think it fits perfectly here. When a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, You don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit there and trust the engineer. The opposite of fear is trust. That's what we need to do. And finally, do not faint. This one caught me off guard. I mean, it's a little weird, do not faint. But here's what it is. It comes from a a quotation in Deuteronomy 23 through 4, where Moses is preparing the Israelites for the facing of the enemies in battle. The priest was to come to the front line of the soldiers and say this. Let your heart not be faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you. And so at our moment of crisis, and with a mind that remembers, a soul free from agitation, and a renewed conviction that God is for me and with me, I can walk in courageous faith. And so here it is. We have that decision. Are we going to walk in courageous faith? Or are we going to look at Ahaz and the circumstances that surround us and say, I'm going to put my faith in man. God is, it's, a, it's an impasse for us. Are we going to trust God or are we going to trust ourselves?